there's a passage in Acts chapter 17. We're, we're continuing our series, The Journey. And we're going to be looking at Jacob here in just a moment. But to kind of jump into this, there, there's a passage in the book of Acts chapter 17 where Paul gets up in front of all the philosophers at the Aragopolis and he presents to them this understanding of who God is. And in chapter 17, verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything. From one man made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. And Paul here gives this illustration that God has established countries and the boundaries and the lands, and he's done this so that people would reach out and find him. That God has placed everyone at a certain time, at a certain place, best suited for those people so that they could encounter the living God. Because God cares He wants people to recognize who he is. And so he's optimized the situation to be most beneficial for everybody. That means the person who is born in India or who is born in Yugoslavia or is born in wherever, California. God has that person there at that time so that they could find him. And it might seem strange to us that God would place someone in a a country that maybe to us seems far from the message of Christ, but it's not difficult for God to reach people wherever they are. And, And as we started this series, The Journey, we talked about how Our journey is taking place in a bigger story. It's the story that God has established. And so the first week we talked about the creation and how God set this in motion and it was good. And we looked at how there is really six parts to this this play, so to speak, that God has set and written. The first was the creation that was good. Then there was the fall, the the brokenness that man has entered into. And then there is the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, Abraham specifically, and then giving the law to Moses. But with the nation of Israel, God has established a covenant saying, through you, I am going to bring the blessing. And we talked about Abraham last week, but then we see in chapter four of this play, so to speak, is Christ himself, the fulfillment of God's promise who has come to redeem, to buy back, to to bring us to the understanding clearly of who God is and to bring forgiveness. 
by his sacrifice. And then chapter 5 of this play that God has written is the church, but it's not completely written yet. It's only half or three quarters or who knows, seven eighths, we don't know. We're in chapter 5 right now, and then chapter 6 is the restoration of all things. And so we know the first five plus chapters, and we know chapter six, but we have to write our own story in this portion that we're living in. With the awareness of all that's happened before and what God is going to do, this is where we live, and our journey is taking place in the story that God is writing. And we are part of it. And so we come now to to Jacob. And we see in Jacob his journey and his encounter with God. And there are so many rich things here that I find applicable to me. I hope you do too. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to read verses 19 to 28. And this is... The beginning of of Jacob's life, of course, we'll find out that Jacob was a twin, which always enters the story. So Genesis 25, verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramain from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban of Aramain. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? She said, What the heck's going on? Remember, this is before ultrasounds, okay? Something is going on. I know you're supposed to have a baby, but it feels like a lot more is going on in there. So she says, what's happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord. I love how it just says that. She's like, it's like a doctor's visit, right? I'm going to go see the Lord. So she goes to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. The two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. What a description, right? A little chia pet. You know, here we go. We've got Esau. And the name Esau means red, means hairy. We're not sure exactly, but it encompasses those two things. Verse 26, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Jacob means to to catch the heel. It's an idiom that also means, though, to deceive or to be deceptive. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Dun, 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 dun. There's problems at the beginning. Problems start with twins, let me tell you. 
Yes. And with these twins, there is this insight that God gives to Rebecca. But then there is the naming and the description that the parents give. When Corrine and my twins were born, the first two two boys, at first we were excited. <laughs> oh boy, we've got two. And then we were exhausted. And because two are so much work, it takes a lot out of you. Last Sunday, Dania was here, Dania Stewart. She has twin boys as well. And I think they're like 16 months old. And it was her first time back church in like over a year. And she just looked at me and she said, does it ever get easier? And I lied and I said it does. Um, <laughs> had to give her hope. And I told her it does as they get older, you know, you are able to, you know, have a little downtime. But I could see the exhaustion just in her because it requires so much time, so much energy. And the first two, the first words out of our two boys' mouth, well, they weren't really words, but it was, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. They used to go around just saying, "Uh uh-oh. Uh oh, and you would just hear everywhere, uh oh, uh oh, and I started thinking, why are they saying that? Because that's what we're always saying, right? It's like, uh oh, okay, uh oh. So their first words with this world were, uh oh. And as they grew up, there became this kind of, oh, here come the twins, oh, here comes trouble, oh man, look out, watch out, these guys are wild, and you know, without even thinking about it, our exhaustion starts to become their life. And uh-oh being their words, first words, starts to become the first steps that they start taking in their lives. And there's so much work done that talks about how even those first five years of child Rearing is so important in shaping those children. And and I look back and I think, oh man, we did so many things wrong. God, thank you for grace. And then he gave us two others so that maybe we could try and do better the next time. I don't know. But the frustration, I think, made an impact on them. And the idea of here comes trouble started to become something that they just identified. I, I remember talking with one of my boys, and they said, well, everyone just thought we were bad, so we figured might as well be bad. And it starts to shape their world, the impression that's given. And so here comes Jacob, and his idiom is, look at that little deceiver. And I wonder sometimes how our lives are defined. What does your identity look like and when did it first start taking shape as the patterns start emerging in our lives we we talked about this last night some at connect how so many times the relationships that we've had even with our parents are the relationships we bring into deeper and closer relationships with other people and jacob 
takes advantage of his brother Esau, but later on he would be taken advantage of by his father-in-law Laban. He, he deceives Isaac, his father, putting on Esau's clothing to make him feel like he was a man out in the woods. And ten of his own sons would use clothing to deceive him. Later on in chapter 27, we see him deceive his father. He was shown favoritism by his mother, but not his father. And this actually led to him having to run away, and he would show favoritism to his wife, Rachel, as well as his son, Joseph, who would then be separated from his family, just like Jacob was going to be separated from him. And we see this pattern starting to emerge, that the, the way the parents acted starts to be the way the children act and the world that they grow up in starts to become what is normal and what they know and i'm wondering what defines you is it how you were raised is it what your parents told you what your belief system was at home there are some people who who never learn to say thank you just because in their home, that's not what they do. They don't say thank you. And so you do something nice to them and they're like, okay, that's fine. And you think, well, you should say thank you. Well, in their home, they never learn to say thank you. Some people never say I love you in their home. It's something that they don't do. There's no hugging. There's no embracing. And then they see a family and they're all... Italian, hey, ah, they're loud and they're all hugging and they're all, oh, I love you and they're kissing each other and they're thinking, what, what, what is this? I don't have that in my life and so it becomes foreign to them because that's not what they've grown up in. And here comes Jacob in this place. He, he's one of the two twins. Father loves Esau. He's the man's man. He's on hunting magazine, you know, and, and there's Jacob. He's on Red Book, you know. He stays home in the tents. He's mama's boy. And it says that he is. Rebecca loved him. Esau loved Jacob. And what happens is he starts to live up to the name they gave him. And so he deceives his brother. Esau comes from hunting, but he's famished. And and there's Jacob cooking this big stew, this lentil soup. And Esau says, give me some, I'm famished, I'm going to die. And Jacob doesn't say, sure, here you go. He says, give me your birthright. Birthright was a big deal. Birthright was given to the firstborn. The birthright meant you would get two-thirds of your father's inheritance, twice as much. That when your father died, you would inherit that role. You would be the one who ruled the household. And then you would also get a blessing from your father that God would bless you. And so it was a big deal. It wasn't just, oh, yeah, you've got the birthright. Yeah, I'm firstborn. No, it was monetary. It was status. It was a position that was desirable. And so Jacob grabs for it because he knows Esau. Esau has this, you know, he wants to have gratification now there is no delayed gratification with him it's like i i could go home and get something to eat but no i want to get it right now sure you can have my birthright who cares i'm starving to death and so jacob 
takes the birthright from him. And we start to see that this pattern of who Jacob is starts to emerge. But here is the thing. God has placed each one of us at a time and a place where he could encounter us. And so God has an encounter with Jacob in chapter 28. Chapter 28, verses 10 through 17. Jacob left Beersheba. He had to. He took his brother's birthright. He got the blessing from his father. He deceived him, put on the hairy garment, cooked some, well, actually, Rebecca cooked some food, said it was Esau because Isaac was going blind, couldn't see, and so he tricked his own father, deceived him, lived up to that image that he was given, that name he was given. And then when his brother Esau found out, Esau said, I'm going to kill him. Rebecca heard this and said, you need to run for your life. And so this is where he is. He's on the run, has to leave his family because he's in fear for his life. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. So God introduces himself to Jacob. And you see, it's not enough that he was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He is introducing himself now to Jacob because he wants to be his God as well. And so he introduces himself, who he is, that he is the God of his fathers. And he says, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. The promise continues now to him. I am with you. And I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And so God is now giving this promise to Jacob. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. House of God, the word Bethel. And and so he gives it the name Bethel. As he encounters God, God extends to Jacob the promise of his father Abraham and Isaac that he had now been personalized in each generation because God will not be just the God of your father. He wants to be the God of you. And so God reaches him. And in this story where The place is underlining thing. Jacob comes to recognize this place as awesome and a sacred site. But God was not localized just to here. He was not tied to that spot. This is not the one place he touched and was active, but this is the place where he reached out to Jacob. You know, there is a rabbinical thought when Moses saw the burning bush. The thought is that the bush was always burning. Moses just never 
saw it. That God was always in this place, that God was always wanting to appear to Jacob. He just was not open to hearing the voice. And maybe it was him running for his life that put him in a different frame of mind. But interesting, Jacob's response. Because then Jacob makes a vow in verse 20. Look what he says. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if, notice that if, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothing to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And that kind of, okay, God, if you do this, 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 and this for me, then you can be my God. Thank you, Jacob. And we see Jacob actually trying to manipulate this relationship with God, just like he had been manipulating all these other things. And this stone that I have set as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Almost seems like, oh, going to give me a rock and a tenth of all you own. Oh, I'm so flattered. There is this conditioning that comes here with Jacob where if you do this for me, God, if you will save my skin, if you will provide for me and get me back to my father's house, then you can be my God. Then I'll let you do these things. And see, Jacob is still working it, even with God. And what does God do? He goes with Jacob but is not through working with him. You see, a tragic life is one in which a person is unfortunate and never becomes aware of God. That's tragic. When a person is unaware that God is there, that's when a life is tragic or or goes through crisis or tragedy or heartache not knowing that God will go through it with you. See, that's tragic. To think that you have no hope, that there is no God there with you, there to care for you, whatever may happen. That's tragic. And after Jacob makes this deal with God, we see that Jacob goes to Laban's house and he is smitten with Rachel. Sees her, she's beautiful. He falls in love with her. And just like he took advantage of his brother Esau, we see that he gets taken advantage of. He falls in love with Rachel, but Rachel has an older sister, Leah. Laban tricks Jacob. Jacob says, I'll work for you for seven years if I can marry Rachel. He says, yeah, it's a deal. It's a deal. And so they, you know, he sets up the marriage and then they go into the tent, but it's dark. He's probably drunk. And he puts his daughter Leah in there instead of Rachel. Wakes up in the morning and goes, whoa, this isn't Rachel. This is Leah. What have you done to me? He goes, well, I can't give you my youngest daughter. You always have to marry the oldest first. But if you work for another seven years, then you can have Rachel as well. He loves Rachel. He says, okay, I'll work the additional seven years. So he has to be there for 14 years. He's married now to Rachel and her sister, Leah. Talk about dysfunction. And there's contention. And just like there was favorites between Esau and Jacob, now Jacob has his 
favorite, Rachel, and then there's Leah. And then God blesses Leah. She starts to have children, and now there's this contention that's going on. And just as he took advantage, we see that advantage is being taken care of, taken advantage over him. And again, families start to have, this is how we do things. We deceive, we trick, we manipulate. It becomes the way of life for them. How to respond to another person's success, anger. You know, how do you deal with this? How do you treat other people? We kind of internalize the family rules and don't even think about them. We, we, we just do them. The rules start to become the relationships. The rules of the relationship are different from family to family. Some are very loving. Some are very affectionate. Some aren't. Some are very strict. Some are very distant. Some are very abusive. And we see it start to play on and on and on. And we see this start to unfold. And so even though he encountered God, he still had to deal with the life he was living. And that's how it is with us. When we went through our Momentum series, we talked about this, how you can come to an awareness of God, but it doesn't change all your circumstance. What it does is it begins to change you. And so God has now, on this journey, reached out to Jacob. Jacob made a deal. If you do this, 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 and this for me, then I'll let you be my God. And now he's in a place where he's struggling, where he's wondering what's going to happen. See, and he's learning some unhealthy things through his family. We see it in Laban's family. And the rules that you naturally follow just become the way of life. And both of his parents played favorites, putting him in competition with his brother. Now he is showing favoritism towards Rachel. And we see that in the next chapter. He will show favoritism to his son Joseph. And his competition with his older brothers will result in disaster for Jacob. It's easy to see these dynamics in other people's lives. We we see the progression in other people, but it's so hard to see them in ourselves. It's so easy to see the mistakes people made and and to put judgment on them, but we are so blind to the things because they are so commonplace in our lives. And, And in this journey that we are living in, just like Jacob, we are a product of this environment that we are in. And then God speaks to us and is trying to pull us out so that we can see his perspective in our situation to help us break out of the molds that we are in to break out of these areas where we are trapped where we are stuck where we feel this is just how it is and we need to be shown where we are wrong we need someone to be able to tell us this is what you're doing because That's just what we've always done. That's how my family has lived. This is how we do things. And we need someone to say, that's not right. And so God gives us scripture. God gives us help and counseling other people that can come alongside and say, have you ever thought about this? That that's not the healthy way to live? To give us a perspective that is different and outside of our own? And after about 20 years with Laban, Jacob finally leaves. He gets his wife, gets his herds and his 
all his kids and he starts moving out. Laban's a little upset, but he finally says, hey, I need to go. And so he leaves and then again he meets God. It seems like Jacob is in distress and this time his tune is a little different than last time. Last time, you know, he was a little bit kind of, you know, cocky, like, hey, you know, I'm leaving, but I'm Jacob. If you're going to do these things for me, then I'll, I'll give you my life. This time he's humbled. Life has a way of humbling us. And as he's heading back, he knows he's heading back to Esau. And after 20 years, is Esau still holding a grudge? Is my brother still wanting to kill me? Because Esau was a buff dude. Esau could take me. I know he could take me, so I don't want to mess with Esau. And so now he comes to a place where he's got to deal with God before he can resolve his problem with Esau. God wants to deal with Jacob before God's going to deal with Jacob and Esau. And you will find that in your journey within the relationships you have, that if God is going to deal with someone else in your life, God first needs to deal with you. This is so true in marriages. If there's a circumstance, and it doesn't matter what the circumstance is, if you've been betrayed by your spouse been betrayed by a brother, a sister, family member, a friend, if you have been hurt by that person, your tendency is going to be, I need to deal with that person and why they hurt me, but the first thing God is going to want to do is deal with you. How are you reacting in this situation? How do you need to react in this situation? Because you have zero control over their life. Let me say that again, because I know we don't think it's true, but you have zero control over that other person's life. Parents, have you realized that with your teenagers? You have zero control over their life. Oh, you can ground them. You can lock them in the room. You have zero control over them. With your spouse, you can yell, you can be angry. You have zero control over them. But what you have 100% control over is you. And that's where God starts. And that's where God deals with Jacob between him and his relationship with Esau. Remember, he's in a high-stress mental state, so it's wise for him to slow down at this point, and he does. He stops and he prays. And prayer can bring our minds to a more rational state. Prayer can help us slow down, and when we actually stop to inquire, to ask of God rather than to tell God, when we actually stop and say, I need help here, I need direction, I need wisdom, I'm going to pause my momentum, my life, so that I can hear your voice give me direction outside of the chaos that I'm feeling. And so Jacob comes to this place where he stops, he prays, And prayer can bring a more rational state of mind. First prayer, then planning and preparation. Prayer also helps us to redirect our attention from the people who are stressing us to God. Prayer helps us to stop thinking about that person who's hurting us and start thinking about what God is wanting to do in us. 
It's a way to enlarge our perspective, to get a, a bigger picture. And this is what Jacob is doing. The big picture exposes our illusions that we have created by our fear, by our anxiety, by our despair. The, the big picture illuminates the fact that you are not in control. So stop trying to be. And relinquish control of your life to God. In prayer, we look beyond the immediate crisis and anchor our hope in the future. And then we find peace because we have hope for our future. But this person betrayed me. But this person hurt me. I belong to him. I have hope now. I can't control them, but I know who I belong to so I can have peace here. Prayer helps us to see beyond our circumstances. And so in the prayer, chapter 32, verse 9. Listen to the difference between this prayer and the last one. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. Listen to verse 10. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Remember last time, God, if you do this, this, and this for me, then I'll be your people. Then I'll be your servant. Then I'll, I'll worship you. But now it's like, God, I'm not worthy. There's a, a change in him. Verse 11, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And so Jacob goes back to God and says, God, I need help. And he's honest with God. You see, it took 20 years to get to this point where Jacob finally says, okay, I need help. I'm afraid. And I'm going back, but you told me you would make me into a great nation, so I'm entrusting my life to you. And then Jacob wrestles with God. This is not like sitting under the tree, watching the sunset, contemplating the lilies of the field, kind of a, a wrestle. This is a struggle. We wrestle with God over many things. Sometimes what we have been called to believe and become doesn't come easily. Sometimes the things that God wants us to do struggle with those things. Sometimes the things that God asks for us in the middle of difficulty is hard and we wrestle with those things. And so we see that he wrestles in verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him till daybreak. 
When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you, unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Such a bizarre tale in Scripture. Such a strange thing. Is this just a, a, you know, a metaphorical expression of what was taking place with Jacob? Is this an actual event that was taking place with Jacob? Yes, it was. It was both. It is giving us an insight into what God is doing and this struggle that's taking place. As, as Jacob is alone, he has to wrestle with God before he can move forward in his life. He has to change his identity. And this whole strange, well, it's getting daylight. It's like, is this a vampire? What's going on? What's with the daylight? You know, when it comes daylight, what's going to happen? It's God needs to establish something now before you can move forward. And so God cripples him touches his hip, marks him so that he will wear in his body this image for the rest of his life. It will remind him of the time. And God renames him. You're not that deceiver anymore. I am going to change your identity. You are now governed by God. And he changes who he is. And he marks him. You know, I have a, a scar on my arm. It's from one of my dog trainings. It's from a husky that was trying to bite me, but he scratched me instead. It's okay, I'd rather have the scratch than the bite. But every time I look at that scar, it reminds me, yeah, you got to be careful. Got to watch out. It could be dangerous. Got another one here. This is from a pit bull. He got me in the arm just a little bit. Yeah, you got to be careful. You got to watch out. It's a reminder of an event that happened. God marks Jacob with an event that happened when he touched him. And he says, your name is now Israel. You see, I believe God wants to mark us. I believe God wants to touch us. That's what baptism is a symbol of, is a memory of what decision we made. And so Jacob is now marked by God, changed. And it's interesting, he says, what is your name? And it's interesting because in the Hebrew, a person usually asked to give their name, rather they would say, who is your name? In other words, who is your name? What family are you from? Or like Jacob asked, please tell me your name. A person asking for something else is asking for something else when he says, what is your name? You see, he's getting behind the name to its meaning. He's saying, who are you? What defines you? He's not just saying, what family are you from? He's saying, what 
is your name? Who defines you? And I've been Jacob. I've been a deceiver. I've been journeying in this life, in this path, and, and maybe that is what you've been doing. This is what I've been. This is who I've been. I've been a person who's been consumed with trying to get success. I've been a person who's consumed with trying to, to gratify myself, maybe with drugs or with alcohol. I've been a person who's been consumed with trying to, to find the right person for my life. I've been a person who's been living this life. This is who I am. This is what defines me. And God is saying, who are you? Because I want to give you another name. I want your name to now be defined by me and not all the things that have been a part of your past, all the brokenness that is there, all the dysfunction that is there. I want to give you a new name, a new identity, so that you can move forward in this life with me. So God isn't just asking where he's from. He's asking what defines you. That is, whatever name sticks. Maybe you think of yourself as lazy. You've been told you were stupid. You've been told, uh-oh, too many times, and that's stuck. And that's now your identity. But your name shall no longer be those things. He was becoming someone else. Jacob was his false self, defined by his birth, the competition with his brother and his family life. Here he is discovering his true self, Israel, ruled by God. And when Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, he was talking about losing that old self with all its illusions to find the true self that can be found in God. Originally, he encountered God in a lonely place that he named Bethel, the house of God. Returning, he names this place where he wrestled with God, Penuel, which means faiths of God. And there's a key word throughout this whole chapter, face. It comes across more than 20 times. In verse 20, or verse 20 occurs four times. The main tension throughout the chapter is located in Jacob encountering Esau face to face. The ultimate resolve, however, is when Jacob finds himself face to face with God and is transformed. And we too, in our journey, are being transformed through the grace and the presence of God. Jacob set up stones at a place where he believed God dwelt. We have a different memorial. We have the cup and the bread, the communion table, the sacraments that are our reminder that our identity is different. It is with God. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, it says, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel. He's sending him back and settle there and build an altar to the God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother's Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with them, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. I am going to testify that God has fulfilled his part and done what he said he would do. 
Romans 5 or 6, it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We are now able to come to this table and acknowledge that God has given us a new name. We are now named with Christ. He has given us a new identity. And wherever your journey has taken you, you are here with the God who sees, the God who cares, and the God who has promised to care for you still, that your future belongs to Him, that your identity is in Him, that all the things you have experienced in the past are not what's going to shape you, but He is going to shape you. He is going to give you His name so that you can be His child and He has taken care of you on the cross. And so what we do at this communion table is we don't just partake of bread and the wine, the grape juice that is here. What we do is we identify with Christ and say, this is now who my identity belongs to. I am hid in Him. And all the stuff that is in my past and all the names that I have been given or that I have given myself and all the things that have held on to me, I have been wrestled by God. I have been marked. I am scarred with Christ. And this is my new identity. I know there are hurts here this morning. I know life will kick you when you're down and have no regard for you. I know that some of us have grown up and have been wounded by things in our past and are dealing with the scars of those things. But I'm here to tell you that God has extended himself just like he did to Jacob in that dream. But this time it's not in a dream. Christ came. God came down because he so loved the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is our identity. Jason's going to come up and lead us in a song right now. And as he comes up, we're going to partake again of this, the elements. And remember, as we're going through this journey, it always connects to the story that God is doing. And our story here this morning finds us with God and with Christ and what he's done. And so as we worship, I want you to take those things that have been your name, those things that have been given to you or that you think of yourself, whether it's stupid, whether it's foolish, whether it is um, helpless, whether it is broken, whether it is lost, whether it is beyond hope. I want you to take those identity that you've been given by whoever and whatever And I want you, when you dip that bread in the the cup, the bowl there, and you take it up, I want you to see that this is your new identity. And as you would eat of this, Jesus said, you are eating of my body, partaking of my blood. In other words, you are, what I have done is becoming who you are. And we proclaim his death. We preach the power of 
the cross. Every time we partake of that, what does that mean? It means this is your new identity. This is who you really are as you entrust your life to Him. Let's worship and as you feel led, come up, dip the bread into the the bowl one time. You can partake it there. Go back to your seat and partake it. But identify with Christ at this time and let His identity be yours. Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power, that is at work within us. May you trade in your name. Hurt, broken, lost. And may God give you a new name. Whole, healed, found. And may your identity not be given to you by your circumstances, but by the God who knows your future. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.